Well, friends, today we're starting a new sermon series called Sacred Life. And it's coming out of what I've been just sort of personally wrestling with in the last year of my life. Here's what I mean by that. Uh, Every seven years, we require our pastors to take what's called a sabbatical. And a sabbatical is just an intentional break from the demands and pressures of ministry so that pastors can sort of reconnect to the reason they got into ministry in the first place, which is loving Jesus, right? It's a way that we want to safeguard our pastors and give our pastors some margin to not get weary and dry and fatigued in ministry, but just to to have like a long life of preaching the gospel and loving God's people and serving the city. And, And I got my last, I got my first sabbatical seven years ago, and I'm on track to go on sabbatical in the middle of October for my second sabbatical. And what's crazy, and the reason I share this is because it's really providential to get to have this break that my family's gonna enjoy for October through January. It's really providential because this has been a year of kind of milestone things in our life as a family. Uh, I turned 40 this year. We celebrated our 20th year of marriage this year. My little beloved, precious daughter, my firstborn, is a senior in high school. We're preparing to send her out in the world this year. And in the midst of all that kind of life change and transition, I've been just trying to lean into it and ask the question, how does Jesus want to meet me in this stage of life? How does he want to meet me in this stage of life? And what's happened for me is I've asked that question and tried to study and pray and reflect and read and listen. What's happened is I've been reminded that not only are people not generic, like Jesus doesn't meet people all in the same way because human beings aren't generic. You're unique. Amen. Like you are you and God created you and he knows the number of hairs on your head. And Jesus draws towards not ideal people or imaginary people, but he draws towards real people. There's not one generic way that Jesus moves to shape us and to redeem our stories. He moves in a lot of different ways. But in addition to there not being generic people, the stages of our life are actually not generic. There's different times in our life where Jesus meets us in unique ways. And the invitations of Jesus in the beginning of life, when you're a teenager or you're in your 20s or you're going to college or you're a young professional, um, that way he wants to meet you there. And what he calls you to in that season is in some ways similar, but also in some ways different than the ways in which he invites you to discipleship in middle life. In middle life, there's new temptations and there's new challenges and there's new problems that you're wrestling with. There's unique problems when you're a teenager and there's unique problems when you're 45, amen? And the way in which Jesus wants to meet you towards the end of your life, the twilight of your life is unique as well. Like the ways in which in some ways he shrinks us before we move towards heaven. We retire, our jobs shrink, and sometimes our families move all over the world. It feels like our family shrinks, and then eventually our bodies start to diminish and shrink. And what I've been wrestling with over the last year is, as we want to love you guys and serve you and point you to Jesus, we want to be mindful that the invitations of Jesus are not generic in the stages of your life. One of the things I read as I've been thinking about this was a really helpful book, Uh, Like all books, you got to chew the meat and spit the bones or like chicken wings, right? Uh, This is a book written by a Catholic guy named Ronald Rollheiser, and it's called Sacred Life. And what he does in that book that has a lot of beautiful stuff and some really kooky, weird stuff. what, What he does in that book is he talks about the stages of life as three prayers that we can pray. 
in the beginning stage of life, our teens and our 20s and our early 30s, the prayer that he talks about is this one. I am your bow, O Lord. I am your bow. Bend me lest I rot. Like I'm your bow. I don't want to waste my life. I want to figure out who I am. I want to figure out who you are. This is the first phase of discipleship. And the challenge in the first phase of discipleship with Jesus is the challenge to get our lives together. Who am I? What am I going to do with my career? And how have I been gifted? And what does Jesus want to do with my life? The second prayer in middle life, which is the longest stretch of discipleship, is I am your bow, O Lord. Bend me, but don't overbend me lest I break. This is when the pressures of life, the things that you asked for that you really wanted, like a career and a mortgage and a family, those things that he gave you start to feel sometimes not quite like a blessing. Can I get an amen, but quietly if your family's next to you, right? Like it's hard, right? And you start to get tired and your energy's not the same and you're tempted to start to get cynical and you've picked up cuts and bruises along the way and there's people that have hurt you and rejected you. This challenge in the second phase is the challenge in Jesus to figure out how do we give our lives away? How do you give your lives away for your kids? How do you give your lives away for your church and for your city? How do you give your life away for your spouse? And then the final prayer, which is rarely talked about in Christian spirituality in today's day and age, but it's essential, is I am your bow, O Lord, bend me, and if I break, I break. And that's like... That's like something a lot of people don't even have the guts to pray. And that's wrestling with a whole different question. That's the question of how do I give my death away for the blessing of my community? The death of my career, the diminishment of my health. For some people, even the diminishment of our faculties, if you wrestle with dementia or Alzheimer's. And that question is like, how does Jesus want to meet you in these different stages of life? So the elders have given me permission to walk us over the next three weeks through these three phases, through these stages of life. Today, we're gonna talk to people in the first stage of life. We're gonna talk to our teens and we're gonna talk to our people in their 20s and folks in their young 30s. Uh, Then next week, we're gonna talk to people in middle life, people that are a bit tired and a little bit exhausted and are trying to wrestle with how to give your life away. And then the last week, we're gonna talk to the people at the end of their life and we're gonna disciple people in their 40s and down to get ready to die on purpose and to give your retirement away on purpose. Does this sound okay? So today, first prayer, uh, I'm your bow, Lord, bend me lest I rot. What's the invitation of Jesus if you're just starting out in life? If you're here today as a Christian or a non-Christian and you're a teenager or you're 20 or you're going to college or you just got out of college or you just started your career, how does Jesus want to meet you? And I wanna begin by saying this, you are a massive blessing to me in this church. I'm overwhelmed in the best possible way that God, for whatever reason, has made our church a really rare kind of church in America where we literally have hundreds of people in their teens, 20s, and early 30s. And I love you guys. I love you guys. Uh, I I do drop the occasional millennial joke, but it's because I love you. It's because I love you. And you guys make our church so full of life and so full of beauty. You bring with you the energy of youth, the energy of youth. And the energy of youth is wonderful. 
To walk into a crowd of people in their 20s just sort of gives you that like, oh, this is beautiful. It makes the hair stand up on the back of my neck when I see you guys worship and when we get to hang out together. You bring life into the church, but here's the challenge. Being young is also really perilous. It's really difficult because the same energy that makes you bring so much life to your friends and your communities, when that energy is inside of your own chest, Sometimes it feels like a volcano that's just about to explode like aliens one style through your stomach, right? It's, it's messy. Being young, being young has always been a violent time. It's a time where it's been said that God and biology conspire together against you, right? God and biology conspire together against you. What that means is this first phase of discipleship comes with a push, It's a push. It's a biological push, but it's not a biological push that God didn't design. It's a push to get you out of the house that you were raised in. It's a push for you to get your life together and figure out who am I and what am I going to do with my talents and am I going to get married or not get married? And that push is really painful for young people to individuate to figure out who am I apart from parents and who am I in this world and how am I going to navigate this world? It's painful for both young people and their parents. So today, what we want to do is lean into the invitation of Jesus. If you're here today and you're starting out, right? You're here today. You're starting out. Youthful energy is in your heart and in your soul. How does Jesus want to meet you? And what I want to show you today is that there's probably a lot of invitations from Jesus, but there's two in particular in the first phase of discipleship. Invitation one and invitation two. Invitation one and invitation two. Invitation one is found in a lot of places, but maybe the most clearly in Matthew chapter 13. I'm gonna read you three verses. Jesus is teaching in parables. And he says this, starting in verse 44. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and he covered up. Then in his joy, He goes and he sells all that he has to buy that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and he bought it. The first big idea is this. The young are treasure hunters and pearl seekers. The young are treasure hunters and pearl seekers. Now, that's not to say that when you hit 30, you stop being a treasure hunter and a pearl seeker, or that if you're a senior, you can't be a treasure hunter and a pearl seeker. But there's something unique that God does in our youth to make this quest for the pearl and this quest for the treasure almost overwhelming in its intensity. Youth, in a lot of ways, is the awakening of desire. It's the awakening of desire. As children, you might've had momentary stabs of desire. That's how C.S. Lewis would put it. You might've had moments where you felt something and experienced something that made you feel something really deep that you didn't understand. But at puberty, something profound happens. At puberty, desire is awakened with an intensity and an amplification that's not just sexual It's about figuring out who am I and what do I want to be a part of? What is it that makes life beautiful? And this awakening of desire, this awakening of desire, this 
beginning on your quest to find the pearl that your life's gonna be about, to find the treasure that your life's gonna be about is a really perilous journey. It's dangerous. Being pearl hunters and treasure seekers is really risky business. What happens, as Blaise Pascal put it, uh, what happens is you start to become aware that there's this thing inside of you that he called the infinite abyss. In the language of Ecclesiastes, it's that eternity itself is stamped on your heart. And what starts to happen is you just have this craving for more. Like, what is life about? Is it friendship? Is it sex? Is it money? Is it career? Like, why am I on this planet? I have a craving to be a part of beauty. I have a craving to be a part of everything and everyone. And that desire, that craving, that infinite abyss gets awakened. And it's really difficult to know what to do with it. It's difficult to know where to point it. It's difficult to know if there is an answer to those deeper longings of our soul. And what happens is that all the kingdoms and all the cultures of this world have proposed cures and answers for your longing, right? All of the kingdoms of this world and all cultures throughout time, both conservative and liberal, pagan and Christendom cultures, they always have different treasures and different pearls that they tell you are the thing that you're looking for. Sometimes the answer that the culture gives is family or security or fame, or money, or respect, or romance, and sexual fulfillment, or freedom, or experience. Sometimes the answer is nature, or it's courage, and honor, and patriotism. Sometimes the answer is you have to leave a creative legacy. Like the list could go on for days and days. And listen, it's not that those things are wrong or bad. Those are all good things that I just mentioned, amen? But the challenge, the challenge is that in our quest to find the pearl, to find the treasure in our youth, we start taking applications and exploring different options. And all of those applications and options fall short of getting to the actual root of the thing that we're looking for. And we know that we don't wanna settle. Like nobody wants to settle. Nobody's like, hey, what I want my life to be about is a career that I don't enjoy, <laughs> right? Or a marriage where I really don't love the person that I wake up next to every day. We don't want to settle. We don't want an ordinary life. We don't want a gray life. We don't want to get trapped in a life we never wanted. We don't want to miss out. Like fear of missing out is real. We want to be a part of something. We don't want to go through life not really being known and accepted and loved. We want deep community. And what happens in our culture is we do a decent job of telling stories about that desire, but those stories don't really help us know what to do with that desire. Stories about youth like basketball diaries, Stand By Me, which by the way, might be the last good Leonardo DiCaprio movie. I think it was like his first. right? Stand by me, dead poet society, boys in the hood, like the list goes on and on. We do a decent job of saying, hey man, in your youth, you don't want to settle. You're idealistic. You got dreams. You're hungry. You're thirsty. You're looking for more. But in our culture, that search is particularly dangerous, right? It's crazy that I graduated in 19, 1997. That's kind of blowing my mind. It was a long time ago. 
And I look back on my senior class, people that I did life with, and like, there was so much lust for life with that crew. There was so much idealism. People wanted to change the world. They wanted to make an impact on the world. There was such a craving for community and to know each other. There was a craving to actually find our place and be known and be accepted for who we really were. And I look back, man, I look back at the carnage that's resulted in the last 20 years as we've gone in all kinds of different directions trying to find the pearl and find the treasure that would answer the identity question and answer the joy question and answer the beauty question. And there's just carnage in my senior class. Broken relationships, addiction, suicides. It's just sad, man. And in my generation, gener- Generation X, we, we might have perfected cynicism, but we're not the only generation that goes there. Because this quest to find the pearl and to find the treasure is really dangerous. And we don't really do a good job in the world or in the church of helping young people direct that quest in a direction that's going to lead to life. It's hard to know what to do with your deepest hunger. Right? Consumerism is a option. But like, are you guys getting to the point where you're starting to realize that beautiful people in beautiful places, like just isn't getting it done? I'm all for third way coffee shops and beer gardens. I love Oklahoma City. It's a beautiful place, beautiful people, cool stuff to do. But you get to a point and maybe you're not there yet, but you get to a point where you've like consumed it all and experienced it all. And you're like, dude, there's got to be more than this. There's got to be more than this. Experience is great. By God's grace, I get to help church planters sometimes in really ugly places and sometimes in really rad places. And when I get to help church planters in really rad places, I'm like, hey, I need an afternoon to spearfish in the ocean and kill things that I'm going to eat. And I love that. I love like being out in the ocean and seeing dolphins and getting to swim with sharks. And that's a great experience. And I used to think that those kind of experiences could be the thing that answers that deep hunger. But then you get home and you're like, oh, that was cool. And I got some Instagram pics, but it didn't last. Didn't last. And for a lot of us, like we're starting to wonder, maybe life is just like a really long episode of Seinfeld, right? I mean, like it's, it's got some laughs, but there's not really a point to it. <laughs> there's not really a story. So just do your best and try to have some good friends and, you know, like yuck it up, tell some jokes, don't take yourself too seriously. There's not really a story that you're invited into. And and I think probably the biggest answer that we have for this desire, this quest for the pearl and for the treasure is our culture just says, well, the answer is finding your soulmate, right? Finding your soulmate. And that's just really problematic. It's really problematic. Because one, all you're doing is just looking at another finite human being and saying, all I want from you is for you to, in every way, complete me and rescue me from the totality of the universe. And you put all your eggs in that basket and what happens is not only do they not do what you hope that they would do, but carnage results because you've asked a person to do something they could never do. And now you're going to be disappointed, frustrated, and angry. And you're just going to leave a wake of, well, not it. Not it, not it, not it behind you. So what do we do with this? What do we do? Well, here's what Jesus is saying in this text, and it's such good news for everybody, not just young people, but young people in particular. What Jesus is saying is this, there really is a treasure and a pearl. The universe is not a hoax, right? 
the desires inside of you to be a part of eternity, to be really known, to answer the identity question, to have something that lasts, all of those deepest desires and deepest cravings, there's actually a treasure and a pearl that can answer them. Here's how C.S. Lewis, who is just a brilliant Christian thinker and writer, here's how he describes this. He writes, the Christian says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. Keep in mind, he was writing in the 50s. Maybe men and women both desire that. Uh, He goes on. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures can satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care. On the one hand, never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings, but on the other, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I will not find until after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned around. I must make it the main object of life to press onto that country and to help others do the same. Jesus is saying like, look, the universe is not a fraud. Those deepest hungers that you've got, that you keep taking applications from all kinds of different supposed pearls and treasures to fulfill, those deepest desires are actually pointing to something that is the real treasure and the real pearl that you were created for. St. Augustine, who probably next to anybody that wrote in the Bible has done more to help Christians think about reality and God and the world and ourselves. St. Augustine wrote this beautiful spiritual memoir called Confessions, and it was all about the first phase of discipleship trying to get your life together, trying to figure out what's the meaning of life and saying, I'm your bow. Don't let me waste my life. I don't want to rot. And in that story, he's really honest about all the treasures and all the pearls that he tries out. He tries out philosophy, right? Deeply, man, he like explores philosophy. He explores sex. He goes deep down the rabbit trail of just sort of sexual relationships, sexual encounters, um, being in sort of a common law marriage with a lady. He tries friendship tries friendship. In his day and age, that was sort of the most noble ideal for pagan thinkers and pagan philosophers. And he goes deep into friendship. He tries religion. Like he explores Gnosticism and he gets trained by these sort of gurus of his day and experimental and experiential ways of doing faith and spirituality. And he gets to the end. Listen, he gets to the end. The whole point of confessions is this one line and it's so beautiful. He writes, Our hearts are restless, O Lord, until they find their rest in you. And that's what Jesus is saying. Like there actually is a treasure. There actually is a pearl. And that treasure, that pearl that you're desiring, even if you don't know you're desiring it, is not something this world can give. It's something that's found in Christ and in Christ's kingdom. In short, Jesus is saying that he is the answer 
for our deepest longings. Now, let's not be naive. That doesn't mean that you become a Christian and you experience all the fulfillment that you're made to experience in Christ all at once, all the time. But what Jesus is saying is that there's answers, plural, and then there's the answer, singular, and Jesus is the answer, and you have no hope. You have no hope. Even if you try a thousand different treasures and a thousand different pearls, you have no hope of getting to the main reason you were created unless you find this treasure that is him and his kingdom. Westminster Shorter Catechism was written like 300 years ago to just help Christians grow in the way they thought about the world and thinking biblically. Um, Catechism is just a practice of doing discipleship with question and answer. And the Westminster Catechism starts with this question. What is the chief end of man? If you're into philosophy, if you've studied intro to philosophy, um, it's the question of your telos, your telos. It's a word that means end. Like, what are you for? (laughs) What are people for? And the answer in this catechism is, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. What Jesus is saying is, hey, listen, there actually is a treasure. There actually is a pearl. And I came to actually bring you into relationship with that treasure and that pearl. And this leads us to the great invitation, the first invitation of youth and the foundational invitation for the rest of your life. Here it is. Sell it all and get the pearl. Sell it all and get the pearl. That's what happens in this parable. Then in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has and he buys the field. The other story says he went and he sold all that he had and he bought it. This is the foundational invitation of Jesus. It's come and follow me. And that come and follow me is this, sell out completely. Go all in. Don't be a half-hearted disciple of Jesus. Don't build your life kind of on Jesus and kind of on finding your soulmate. Don't let it be 50% career is your telos and 50% Christ and his kingdom is your telos. Go all in and make the pearl yours. Sell your life and get Jesus. Give him everything. Make him the bedrock of your life. Elsewhere, Jesus tells this great parable about this man that built his life on the sand, right? And the storm of life comes and the house put on the sand, it gets wrecked, it gets destroyed, it falls apart. Versus the one who built his house on the rock and the storms come because you can't help it, storms are coming for you. The storms come, but the house stands. And Jesus says, the one that builds his life, his house on the rock, meaning Christ and his words, is the one that's built his house on a foundation that endures. Selling it all is that. Because all the other treasures and all the other pearls and man, all the other treasures and all the other pearls might seem like a solid foundation, but they cannot support the structural weight of a human life. Marriage is good. Sex is a gift. Children are wonderful. Career is a blessing. Nature is amazing. Friendship is incredible. What a gift food and drink and the pleasures of this world have their place, but none of those things bear the structural weight of a human existence. And when the storm comes, it's going to eat your lunch because Jesus is the pearl. Jesus is the treasure. 
back to St. Augustine, that guy that said, our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you. He was preaching to his church, people that he loved, and he wanted them to engage in sort of a hypothetical scenario to help them figure out what that looks like. And so he asked people to imagine that God offered them a deal, right? And here's what he says. God comes to you and he tells you, I'll give you anything you want. You can possess the whole world. You can have infinite power. Nothing will be a sin, nothing forbidden. You will never die, never have pain, never have anything you do not want and always have everything you do want, except for just one thing. You will never see my face. And Augustine asks, did a chill arise in your heart when you heard the words, you will never see my face? That chill is the most precious thing in you. That is the pure love of God. My prayer for the young people in our church, for all people in our church, my prayer is that you would answer this in your youth and not waste decades chasing after false treasures and false pearls. My prayer is that you would answer this question and sell it all to have Jesus. Sell it all to have Jesus. And that leads to a second invitation. That first calling is the calling to Jesus, but there's a second calling and that's your calling for Jesus. Jesus tells this great parable in Matthew 25 of the talents. Here's what happens quickly. There's three servants and their master comes and gives them three different amounts. One's given five talents, one's given two, another's given one. And the first two servants, they go and invest their master's talents and they double the master's money. Here's what happens with the third. Look at verse 24. He who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you were a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and I hid the talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But the master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I do not sow and gather where I, scared, where I scattered no seed then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to who? To he who has 10 talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given. He will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness, into that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay, this first challenge of discipleship to get our lives together, it needs the foundational call of the first call. Like the first question is, will you respond to Jesus as the treasure and the pearl and sell everything to get him? Will you build your house on the rock? But then you got to figure out if your house is on the rock, how are you going to construct the rest of it? What are you going to do to get your life together? What's the next 20, 30, 40 years of your life going to look like? And I think Hugh Welchel who's a leader in the church. He, he's the director of the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics. I think he breaks down this passage in a way that's unbelievably helpful for people trying to get their lives together. He mentions five things quickly. First, this parable teaches that success is at least in part a product of our work. We're called not just to Jesus, but we're called for Jesus and to work by God's grace in the world to glorify Jesus with our jobs and our relationships in such a way that he gets glory and the world's a better place for our labor. We're called to invest the talents 
that he's given us. Secondly, the parable of the talents teaches us that God gives us everything we need to do what he's called us to do. Where did the talents in the story come from? The master. And this is great news for people that are looking down the barrel of a really scary world where it's probably more possible today than it was even 20 years ago to graduate from college and make less than your parents and not pay off student debt and try to figure out how to navigate a world that feels like there's an impending political apocalypse at any moment. But if you're young and you're looking at the world, it's easy to think like, not is the world going to be an apocalyptic hellscape, but just what kind of hellscape will it be? Right? Is it going to be more like Waterworld and Kevin Costner or more like Mad Max? It's scary. The world's freaky. And it's hard to figure out how to navigate it and how to start a life. Like I talk to people all the time that are wrestling with even, do they want to have kids and bring kids into the world? And this parable is so encouraging. Here's what, here's what God's saying. He's like, listen, anything I call you to do, anything I call you to do, I'm going to supply what you need to do it. I'm going to help you. I'm going to meet you. I'm going to fill you. I'm going to be with you in it. This is so amazing. See, like, to be young and to have the first invitation responded to with, yeah, I'm selling it all for Jesus, is to fear God. Meaning, like, I want Jesus' will more than I want anything else in the world. And if that question's answered, you don't have to live in fear about you and your own ability getting all of your life together. Like, God's will is not going to sneak by in the night like a ninja that doesn't want to get caught. God's not going to bring you before him in heaven and be like, well... I never revealed anything that I wanted you to do, but you didn't figure it out. Sorry, bad for you. God gave you talents because he wants to be glorified in your life and he wants your life to make a difference and he's gonna walk with you in that. In addition, thirdly, this parable of the talents teaches us that we're not all created equal. Now, in terms of value, dignity, and worth, we are. All human beings are image bearers of God. And all human beings have equal value, dignity, and worth, both in, in birth and in the new birth. But not all human beings get the same talents. There are no generic people. Look at verse 15. To one he gave five, to another two, to another one, each according to his own ability. Here's what it's saying. Like, part of following Jesus and getting your life together is not just getting to know God more, but it's getting to know yourself more. How's he gifted you? What are the burdens he's given you? What are, the, what are the ways that he's strengthened you to make the world a more beautiful place? What are the dreams he's put in your heart? What are you good at? What are you bad at? And we live in this crazy world where it's like the message of everybody is, is you can be whatever you want to be. It's like, I like the heart of that because it's saying you're not capped. You can swing for the fences, but it's also kind of a dumb message because you can't be whatever you want to be. You can be whatever you have gifting and calling and capacity to be. And what this text is saying is that that's actually a beautiful thing to figure out who you are instead of comparing yourself to everybody else. St. Augustine played with this idea of like, love God and do as you please. And that sounds kind of like heresy, right? It's like, love God and do as you please. But here's what he's saying. If you're pursuing Jesus with all your heart because the first invitation and you're seeking him and you're loving him, then the closer you get to Jesus, the more you can actually take stock of the things that you really desire to do with your life. There's a young man in our church that just left to go to Harvard Law. Like, I was not given those talents. 
right? I wasn't given those talents. This dude is brilliant. And I'm so proud of him because he's going to go to Harvard Law and he's going to graduate and help change the world. He's going to swing for the fences with the talents that he's been given. There's young people in our church that are doing trade school and they're going to swing for the fences to glorify God by working with their hands and making our city a better place with what they build. There's some of you that you just dream about food. And I don't mean like a gluttonous way. You're just super gifted to put food together and to facilitate hospitality. That's a way that God's entrusted abilities to you. My two kids, I'd die for either one of them. I love them with all my heart. I love them equally next to Jesus and my wife. They're the greatest gift I've ever got. And I delight in how different they are. Liv's got talents. Elijah's got talents. I don't compare them. I'm not like, well, I wish she was more like him and he was more like her. That would be insane because God in his sovereign wisdom created them so unique and so different. And part of the first phase of discipleship is getting so close to Jesus that you start to get to know yourself better. You start to get to know yourself better. And this leads us to the fourth thing. The parable of the talents teaches us that work for the master, that we work for the master and not for our own selfish purposes. They're his talents. It's his kingdom. It's his glory. It's his name and his fame. Colossians 3 verses 23 through 24 should be like tattooed backwards on the chest of every person that's starting out their career, right? Here's what it says. Whatever you do, you a barista, you a doctor, you an artist, are you an accountant? Are you a stay-at-home mom? Are you a school teacher? Whatever you do, work heartily. I would like to pause here and preach a 45-minute sermon on that. I'm not going to do it. But he says, work heartily. Work with your heart and your soul. Work with passion. Why? As for the Lord and not for men, because it's worship. It's about him and his glory and his name knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You're serving the Lord Christ, not your name and not your boss, not your professor. You're serving Jesus. And this leads us to the last thought as I close. Finally, the parable of the talent shows us that we will be held accountable. We will be held accountable. Now this passage here, Matthew 25, is not about salvation by works. It's not like God's gonna evaluate your life. And if you didn't invest your talents, enough. You're not going to earn your way into heaven because we know from the rest of scripture, that's not how you're born again. You're saved by grace. But as you're saved by grace, you're going to be held accountable to not waste your life. And that first prayer, I'm your bow, Lord, bend me lest I rot. That's a prayer that ought to come out of the depths of your soul. Like every young person in our church should have passion to raise up your hands and lift up your eyes and say repeatedly to the living God, use my life for your glory. And then not expect that to look like how he used my life for his glory or your neighbor's life for his glory, but to figure out the way that he's going to use your life for his glory. So as I wrap this up, the foundational calling and then the subordinate or the secondary calling in this first invitation is, it's a calling one to Jesus. Because if you don't get that right, you're not going to get anything else right. Come to the one who is the treasure and sell it all. Sell it all. Don't be like, well, I'm 50% all about him as my treasure and then 50% about marriage or career being my treasure. Sell it all. And then the second calling 
is not just for Jesus or not just to Jesus, but it's for Jesus. Work heartily under the Lord, figure out who you are and run hard in the things he gives you to do. And don't make your life a life of comparison. Make your life a life of joyful expression of the unique talents and abilities and capacities that he's given you. And what's so cool is that you don't have to figure out what that's gonna look like in 40 years. If you're in high school and you're trying to figure out your major today and there's all that pressure, like, dude, you don't know what you're gonna be doing in 40 years. You don't. So talk to your parents and talk to your friends and figure out what you're good at to the best of your ability and pull the trigger and work heartily for the Lord. And he's not gonna sneak by you in the middle of the night. He's gonna order your steps providentially. It's gonna be beautiful.